Hi everyone, I'm Paul Yeager. This is the MTOM Show podcast, a production of Iowa PBS and the Market to Market TV show. That land behind me is lush and green. Water is at the source of that, and the old Mark Twain saying, which we frequently talk about on Market to Market, is going to be a little bit of the center of today's MTOM Show podcast. I'm Paul Yeager, by the way. Thanks for watching. Uh, if you have feedback for me, hit me up in an email, paul.yeager at iowapbs.org. The uh, name or the best way to spell is on the screen right now. We're going to go to wa the state. We're going to go west to the state of Arizona. Catherine Sorensen is somebody who appeared recently on Market to Market in a story about alfalfa. And a couple of things that she said got our attention. So we're going to talk about water usage in the west, specifically around the Colorado River. Her job with the Kyle Center and at Arizona State University. She also used to run a couple of water uh, districts. So we get some great insight there from her about just how vital and imperative a decision is for this topic and the ticking clock that's happening on this issue. We'll get into that in this installment of the MTOM Show Podcast. Catherine, where I'm at, uh, almost a foot of snow yesterday, but you're telling me, oh, woe is Arizona because you went below freezing yesterday, or how'd that go? We did. We had record lows as well. So, um, yeah, it, uh, I think we ended up around 30 degrees, which I know for Iowa is warm, but for, for us here in Arizona, that's pretty cold. Now that happens. But what does, uh, is Arizona home? I mean, career-wise, but did you grow up there? Yeah, I, I'm from Tempe, Arizona. Uh, went to McClintock High School. And um, yeah, and actually, I think that kind of formed a lot of my interest in water. Because of course, if you grow up in the desert, you kind of naturally understand the importance of water and it's and the lack thereof. And, and so I think that that really did help form my career path. Is it just go without saying that everybody around you also pays attention to we're in a desert, there's not much water? You know, that's a good question. I, I would say it's mixed. Um, there are some people who go about their daily lives and uh, water comes out of the tap and um, they use water to irrigate uh, lawns or their landscaping outside and they don't really think much about it. But I think there's more and more people who, who do understand, no, this is a, a really precious resource. We live in the desert. Um, you know, native landscaping is gorgeous. And really are, are choosing to live a, a more desert-adapted lifestyle. But we have a lot of transplants from the Midwest and other places. And, you know, sometimes it takes them a minute to kind of figure out, like, hey, you know, maybe you should live a little differently out here in the desert. The water situation is always a story that now has stretched beyond your region to the Midwest, to the East. Everybody's paying attention to the water. Is that a new phenomenon nationwide that you found? You know, I kind of feel like it is. I, I would say, especially in the last five years or so. And, and what's ironic is that uh, obviously here in the desert, we've known for decades how precious water is and, and what the risks are of not having an adequate water supply. And, and so we've planned very carefully to make sure that, that we have one, you know, particularly here in, in the Phoenix area. And I think other cities across the nation are, are now buying themselves in really unexpected situations uh, where they are also facing scarcity issues they, that they didn't think they would ever face, which is kind of interesting. 
we're going to get into those in a moment, but I need to make sure I connect the dot from your high school to college to work. How did you make that? Uh, where, where was that jump? Yeah. So actually, so after graduating high school here in Arizona, um, I went to the University of Michigan. So I, I sort of became a reverse snowbird. I, I was in Michigan when it was frigid cold, and then I would come back home for the summers when it was crazy hot. Um, but hey, when you're young, you can tolerate such things. Um, and, and then actually I went, I, I never did a master's degree. I went, uh, immediately into a PhD program at Texas A&M university, uh, where I actually did a dissertation in the economics of water resources. Um, but I'm a desert girl, uh, love Arizona. And so when I finished my education, I, I, I came back home and, uh, took up a career in water resources ultimately ended up running the water utilities for the city of Mesa, Arizona, which is just east of Phoenix, and then um, ran the water and wastewater utilities for the city of Phoenix for several years. In those two cities, the main source of water is, is it well? No, actually, um, the the Valley of the Sun is, is blessed to have access to water from our local salt and Verde River system. Um, those are river systems that... Um, originate a snowpack up in the mountains in uh, central and eastern Arizona and then flow through the Valley of the Sun. Um, and and then there's also imported Colorado River water. It's imported from western Arizona on the border with California. Uh, and yeah, there is some groundwater use, um, but uh, maybe less than you might think. Are all of those agreements old agreements? Yes. Well, old is relative, right? And uh, the, the Phoenix area is is relatively young. But yeah, um, in fact, uh, our development of Salt and Verde River water dates back to about 1903. Um, the Salt and Verde River system was developed through the Salt River Project, which was one of the Bureau of Reclamation's earliest projects. Um, it predates statehood for us. And uh, we began importing Colorado River water into central Arizona in about the mid-80s. So, I don't know, old is a relative term. And pulling from the Colorado, there's a lot of people who put a straw into that river. How has that changed over, you know, give me a, a, a sense of, obviously before the 80s, but maybe since the 80s, where maybe that intensity has grown? You know, that that's a really good question. So, um, you know... Farmers have made and Native American tribes have made use of the Colorado River for you know a very very long time. In the case of Native Americans, since time immemorial, um, farmers you know at more than a hundred years. So the use of the river dates back quite some time. But of course, as uh, farming acreage expanded, uh, particularly uh, after or during World War II. Uh, to grow cotton for war material and and other purposes, and then as population grew as well, uh, more and more uh, people used more and more of the Colorado River water, and so um, it 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 is an over allocated system. It's it's over allocated uh, by a fair amount, and um, it, when you put on top of that climate change and the fact that. The scientists say the flows of the river might diminish by as much as 25%. There's a real problem there on the Colorado River. So source is one discussion we could get into in, in that, but also the usage side of things. Which, which has the greater possibility for a solution here? Yeah, that well, 
use. I mean, we have to live within what Mother Nature gives us. Uh, otherwise, we will drain our reservoirs. So, so that's pretty clear. But, um, you know, something on the order of 70% of the water in the Colorado River is used actually for agriculture. So although a lot of people like to think that um, the increasing population of the Southwest is a main driver of the overallocation of the river, that's, that's, that's really debatable. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of people have straws in this river. Um, and, and so I would say that it's overallocated both because of agricultural uses, but also because of the uses of the city. But yeah, we have no choice, right? Uh, it, it's an overallocated river system. That means we absolutely have to find a way to use less on an annual basis and, and have to find a way to live within um, a, a diminishing river. That That's a tall order uh, because, of course, that, that water is very valuable to farmers, to Native American communities, to cities, to industries. So it, it's a big challenge ahead of us. California is known for their senior rights, junior rights. What are the rights of the user in Arizona? Yeah, actually, so Arizona ended up kind of with the, the short end of that stick. Um, Arizona is, um, in both in population and political power, a small state compared to California, always will be. Um, back decades ago, Arizona wanted to import uh, Colorado River water from Western Arizona into the growing cities of Phoenix and Tucson. And California kept blocking Arizona um, for the federal legislation necessary to do so. And, and understandably so. I mean, if I were California, I would have done the same thing. Uh, finally, uh, a compromise was reached in um, 1968. The federal legislation was pushed through but the price that California extracted from Arizona for passage of that federal authorization was that when there is not enough Colorado River water to go around in the lower basin, and so that's Arizona, California, and Nevada, that Arizona um, cuts back the, the imported water from Western Arizona first. So all the water from Western Arizona that gets imported into Central Arizona gets cut when there isn't enough to go around before Western Arizona and California take cuts on the river. So, so we again, have the that, lowest priority. Is what I right. Say. And again, it's a source issue. You're not going to likely get more of that source. So boy, how fun are those meetings trying to tell someone that they're going to have less? Yeah, it's tough. Um, you know, and, and of course, Arizona has and, and probably will continue to take the largest cuts um, when there isn't enough to go around. But but I think there are some equity issues at play. Um, and, and for one thing, about 45% uh, of the water that flows through the canal that imports water into central Arizona belongs to Native American tribes. Um, and uh, the rest, you know, feeds cities uh, here in the Phoenix and Tucson area. So, I, you know, I, I think there are some compelling uh, equity arguments that matter. Um, in these days that, that maybe didn't matter as much in the past, but certainly it, it's a tall order. And, you know, I understand the position of uh, the Native American tribes on the river and the farmers on the river who say, hey, you know, we were here first. We have the highest priority, right? Uh, this is this is your problem to deal with. So it, it, this it's tough. These are tough conversations. So who's in the room for those discussions? Um, mainly it's, it's the principles of the seven states that share the Colorado River. Uh, so the principles of Wyoming, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, 
California and, of course, the Republic of Mexico. It, it's a relatively small number of people. Um, of course, those people then go back to their stakeholders within their states, of which you can imagine there are many. Um, and, and that's part of the challenge, right, is it, it's not just those people in the room that matter. It's it's all their stakeholders back home. Each state has its own unique politics that it also has to deal with. Um, so, yeah, it, 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 these are really complicated conversations. And I, I guess this is more of a, led, uh, a story in government. But is there one group of, or state that gets more say than the other because, oh, we're bigger or we're smaller or we have more demand? Not not really, though um, states and, and stakeholders can fall back on the priority system. And, and that's a lot of what we've heard out of the farmers in California, right? Is It's just, hey, we have the highest priority, right? This is your problem, not ours. But I, I really feel like we've seen some movement there. I, I think that um, even those with the highest priority water rights, um, which include the farmers in both Western Arizona and in California and um, so, you know, Native American tribes along the main stem of the river, I think all of them understand that, oh, okay, that's great. I can fall back on this priority system. But if that leads us to drain our reservoirs and hit Deadpool, then we're all out of water. Then, then the priority system at that point doesn't matter. So I, I, I think you'll see reasonable compromises or, or at least attempts at them. <laughs> and what's the time <laughs> frame on reasonability? Oh, it's so short. That's the problem. Um, so the, the Colorado River system, the um, so Lakes Powell and Mead, which are the, the reservoirs that um, feed the system, the largest reservoirs in the United States, um, those operate under guidelines that were set in 2007. And those guidelines are set to expire at the end of 2026. And so right now, the states and the Republic of Mexico are, are desperately negotiating new operating guidelines for those reservoirs. And, and to put that in context, those new operating guidelines will basically dictate when shortage occurs, how deep those shortages are, and potentially who has to bear those shortages. So everything is at stake right now. It, it, it's a really big deal. Um, and the federal government has signaled that there there isn't much time to figure this out. I mean, it's already 2024, and whatever solution is arrived at, and let's hope there is one, the federal government still has to go through um, it, its whole NEPA uh, environmental process and then publish the documents for comment. So, mm. um, you know, I, I, I think people are hoping that some skeleton of an agreement can emerge this spring. Wow. That would be, that would be tremendous uh, because... When did they all sit down and agree to actually be in the same room together, whether it's virtually or in person? <laughs> well, that's interesting. You know, actually, the, the, the principals meet on a near constant basis and have been doing so for, I, I don't know, easily the last 10 years, I would say, if not longer. Um, because it, it really, we really started to run into... Um, declining reservoir levels uh, around the mid-teens, right? Mm -hmm. And people started to realize that, oh boy, that, you know, the math on the river system does not look good. And, and since that time, uh, people have been working um, very earnestly uh, towards finding solutions. And, and you know, there, there have been um, some great solutions that have come forward. Um, our, our collective usage of the Colorado River 
um, in the lower basin here uh, between Arizona, California, and Nevada is is at its lowest point. Um, you know, since I I don't know since the reservoirs were filled or whatever for a, a very very long time. There's been um, intentional uh, voluntary agreements put forward to to collectively use less, and and those so far have been relatively successful in arresting the the falling reservoir levels. Whether those types of agreements can continue into the future and what they look like is kind of the issue at point. The story, how we found you, is you were in an Associated Press story about alfalfa farmers in Arizona. And we know in looking at government maps, there's a lot of alfalfa grown in Arizona and Nevada and parts of California. That is a water-intensive crop. Is that at all figured into this discussion of, you know, maybe we shouldn't grow a water-intensive crop? That's the use side of the equation that I think we talked about already. Certainly people talk about that, but 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 let me say this. Y- yes, there's a lot of alfalfa grown in um, Arizona and California in particular, but there's a lot of alfalfa grown across the Colorado River Basin, including in Colorado and Wyoming and, and Utah and New Mexico. It, it, it's a common Western crop, particularly here in the Southwest. And there's a reason it's grown here. Um, it You know, we have the hot and sunny climate that makes alfalfa grow very productively. So here in the desert Southwest, um, farmers can, can expect to get something like 10 to 12 cuttings a year, which is very productive. Um, if you look at places like Montana or, you know, other places where there's a shorter growing season and it's colder, they might get what, two, four cuttings a year. So there's a reason it's grown here. And of course, the production of that alfalfa is important to rural economies. So, so it's really important to at least recognize that, right? That there's a reason it's grown. It is important to these rural economies, but sure, Agriculture uses the most water in the Colorado River Basin by far, and alfalfa uses the most water of the agricultural water use. So it's got to be on the table, and it is a topic of conversation for sure. In the area behind me, corn country, there's always this debate of food versus fuel. Yeah. Where, what is it called in your region uh, for that <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I guess food versus cities. Um, yeah, it's tough. And, and to put that in context, in Yuma, Arizona in particular, the vast majority of the nation's winter vegetables are grown. It, it is highly productive agriculture. It is not federally subsidized. Um, it, it is industrial agriculture. So you're not just talking about the water and sun and soil to to feed these crops, you're talking about the um, skilled labor force, the refrigeration services, the, the transportation network. It's it's highly productive agriculture, um, and, and it's important to the whole nation. Um, but at the same time, of course, um, they all the cities of the Southwest continue to grow, and so there is a, a natural tension there, um, just like I'm sure there is in corn country. There is, and there's some of those vegetable production areas. Of course, today we're not growing uh, tomatoes, but there are greenhouses that have come, and they need water year-round, and they need energy year-round. There was COVID kind of, and that whole transportation logistics issue really heightened a lot of people's awareness of 
where is my food grown? How does it get to me? Then, then maybe they'd fallen out of. Did I always say COVID accelerated a lot of discussions that were being had? Is that the same in this case for you? No, I, I, I wouldn't say so because I think that we knew pre-COVID that our reservoirs were in trouble, um, that that water levels in Lakes Powell and Mead were falling. And so I, I would say that we've been working pretty diligently on this river system for more, uh, at least 10 years, um, trying to figure out ways to collectively use less. When you say we, I know you mentioned several states. Where are you in this? You personally and the center, are you strictly as an observer in all of this? And are there other people in these rooms that can be the, we'll say, cool hands? And, and let's let's take this tension down a moment. You know, so yeah, me, me personally, no, I, I am not in the room, nor was I in the room when I was the director of Phoenix Water Services. Um, the, the person in the room really who matters is the head of the state's department of water resources. They, they are the, uh, deemed to be the, uh, head negotiator for the state of Arizona, but that, and, and it's interesting you ask that because, um, you can imagine there are many stakeholders across all of these states, right? Um, there are, um, industries, you know, mines, um, there are, um, farmers, there are Native American communities, the cities themselves, you know, there's a lot of stakeholders. And there's a lot of conversation about, well, who should be in the room? Who's in the tent and who's not? I, I'm not sure that focus is necessarily productive because to me, it matters a, a little bit less who's in the room and more who has influence mm -hmm. on what is said in the room. And, and those are not necessarily the same things. And there are ways to exert influence without actually being at the table. So I don't know, I have a, a little bit of a different perspective on that. Well, and I look at Arizona, just, we'll just take that example, your state. You, you mentioned the growing population of an area. When you are the head of, of the water in Arizona, you have, it, it's, I guess, like an election. There are a whole lot of people who vote this way, and I vote's probably not the right word in an election standpoint, but have influence on, no, I need water to live in my house. But then maybe a smaller number, but maybe a greater number of economic input from the agriculture side. That's a tough spot for all of these people to be in, or, or am I just drawing too much in conflict there you know it, it's interesting um yeah they, there certainly is conflict between the farmers in rural arizona and the the cities in central arizona and and a good example of that is that the town of queen creek which is east of arizona um recently actually acquired uh water rights off of the main stem of the colorado river purchased them and 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 basically severed and transferred them which out out here in the West means they bought the water rights and they're moving them somewhere else um, in, into central Arizona. It was enormously controversial. And the, the farmers in Western Arizona are still extremely upset about this because it is very likely that more of that will occur. Um, so there is this natural tension, but I think, you know, one of the things that we have going for us on, on the Colorado river in particular is that it is for all that there are many stakeholders it is still a relatively small number of people, um, and everyone kind of knows everybody. Um, we we all meet up once a year in Las Vegas at, at the Colorado River Water Users Association. You know, kind of 
we vomit around each other um, sometimes too much. And um, that helps, right? Those personal relationships help. And and when you're negotiating very tough issues, it's it's really of paramount importance to understand the perspective of those who are sitting across the table from you, right? Mm-hmm. And and so and I I do think we have that in the Colorado River Basin, and I and I think we have people who are very very earnestly um, trying to find reasonable solutions. So, and yeah. No, that's it's exactly what I'm I'm I envision is happening. That's the way it's being reported in in the way I read it. But I now want to move just a moment to the east of you. I'm looking at Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, Nebraska, to an extent Wyoming. Those that aren't necessarily directly in the Colorado Basin, but are in their own water issues. Then you move to the Mississippi and the Ohio Valleys. There's all these water issues. What can or what should people in those states be looking at for guidance where you're at and these decisions that are being discussed about with the Colorado? You know, the first thing I would say is that I think they need to understand that things can get much, much worse than they even imagined today, right? Um, that the climate is changing and, and that may have impacts that are much larger um, than, than what they have seen historically, that the past is not necessarily a guide for the future behavior of these river systems. Um, and so that, that would be number one. And then, yeah, you know, and I, I'm sure they know this, but um, getting in a room and fighting it out, I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of that. And I say fight, and, and I will tell you, sometimes it is a discuss. fight. Discuss. Actively yeah, discuss. Discuss, honestly. Um, there, there isn't another way to do this other than to have those extraordinarily hard um, conversations and to get angry with each other and to caucus and to come back and try again. Um, but I think we will see more and more of these conflicts. One of the issues that's, that's really difficult, and I think we're seeing this in um, Nebraska, I think it is, with the canal that might uh, take water out of Colorado. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. Um is that you know one of the tenets of Western water law is use it or lose it, and if you're not using the water, then someone else has the right to use it because it's a scarce resources. And of course, just everyone understands that possession is nine tenths of the law, and so um, that creates a perverse incentive for stakeholders and and others to make more use of these resources to assert a stronger claim. So, so that that's hard, right? That that's a, a difficult thing to deal with. But I think it's important to understand when when people do that, they are doing it as rational actors, given the rules of the system. In Iowa, specifically here, I'm going to use the reference of our backyard. Uh, our rivers here drain eventually into the Mississippi, uh, and that's and that has seen low levels uh, and shipping grade. But yeah. one of the bigger discussions has been, I think it's much more of a discussion that happens around you, is we've had data centers come and they come to our area because of the accessibility to water. The discussions have started now, maybe late, because these some of these facilities are here. Have we missed the boat on paying attention to <laughs> what's happened? And uh, is there any way to reverse things like that? Not saying that's what we should yes. do or could do, right. but is it too late? You know, I, I don't I don't think so. Um, and, and it's interesting that 
this may not be the case in the Midwest because you guys actually get free water that falls from the sky, of which we are very jealous. Um, but here in the Southwest, of course, agriculture is, is in most cases, the most intensive use of water, um, that you can apply per acre, right? Like it on an acre foot per acre basis, agriculture generally uses the most amount of water. Some exceptions to that are mining, um, semiconductor manufacturing and data centers, which are all very intensive, uh, you know, uh, water or water intensive industries. I don't view it as, as, as you know, some game. Um, I, I view it as trade-offs and choices. Mm-hmm. Um, d- you know, do we want to grow cotton? Do we want to grow semiconductors? Um, it, it can be both. Um, but you have to plan very methodically for the adequacy of the water supplies to support the industries that your community chooses. And that has long been the attitude of, of us here in central Arizona, um, because water is scarce and we know it. We know that whatever those land use choices are, there we, we have to plan very carefully to make sure water is adequate and that the impacts of those land use choices don't fall disproportionately on existing users. But that's hard. I'm not saying that's easy. I know easy. it is. But it, and those are the same types of uh, phrases that, that, that are talked about all the time here. I mean, we're hearing those same things that I've been reading about in your region for years. And yeah. now the land use issue, whether it's solar or uh, hydroelectric or whatever it is that you're going to use the land for, the land usage factor. So I guess I'll, I'll ask you this one, Catherine. There's an old phrase, I believe it's a Mark Twain, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting for. Is that still an accurate statement? Always will be. Always will be. Yeah, I mean it, and, and I think you'll see more and more of that in parts of the country um, that haven't had to face that issue before. Um, water is is scarce, and it will only become scarcer. Um, but I want to end. I, I want to you know end on a positive note, and that is that solutions are known, right? And for all that, um, it, it, people have been moving water from where it is to where they want it to go for literally thousands of years. Mm-hmm. It is something that humans are actually really good at. Um, it, if you look back in ancient history, Roman aqueducts, um, the Indus River Valley. I mean, people had this figured out a very long time ago. And and fundamentally, for all that it is very expensive uh, to move water from where it is to where you want it to go, it, it's expensive, it, it's politically difficult, all, all of those things. It, it has uh, socioeconomic impacts. It is um, less difficult and less expensive than keeping ocean water out of cities. So, look, every city's got its problem. Every community has its problem with water. For my part, I'll pick this one. Yeah, and it's uh, it, and it, we have a little bit of a deadline push. I guess we act best as Americans when that deadline. Okay, maybe that's just us procrastinators. When that deadline <laughs> is coming, and you're saying it's just a couple of years away. I guess it's we can still end positive here, Catherine, but what happens if that deadline is missed? Is there one of those, can we extend it for two years while we work a debate, uh, work a discussion? Wow, that that's, that's tough. Um, so the federal government, of course, is um, threatening that if the seven states in Mexico can't figure this out, that they will come in and take unilateral action. They always threaten that. But I, I and, and that's great. And they should threaten that. 
But I will tell you that the last thing that any political administration wants to do is say who gets water and who doesn't, right? Because you can't win that. Um, but yes, I, I think they can exert pressure and the, there's probably some odd legal ways to extend deadlines though. You know, let's, let's just hope we don't have to go there that, you know, and, and let's hope we can avoid litigation. That's really the biggie. Yeah. yeah. And avoid, uh, just, can't we just all get along, right? The old <laughs> phrase like that, right, Catherine? If only, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Catherine Sorensen, I appreciate your time and insight on an issue that uh, we know is not going away and uh, always get to good to get a, a different perspective. Thank you. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. New episodes come out each and every Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts or you can watch us on YouTube. Subscribe today. We appreciate any feedback that you want to give guest topic ideas, or just general, hey, Paul, why aren't you wearing that gray sweatshirt this time? Hmm. We'll see you next Tuesday when a new episode drops. Bye-bye.